Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and this episode is all about the ancient Arabs. So in this episode, I'm focusing on the peoples referred to as the Arabs in literary sources from between about the 9th and 5th centuries BC, when the Eastern Mediterranean was politically and culturally dominated by the Neo-Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian, and Achaemenid empires in succession. And before the 9th century, there's no written mentions of Arabs. And after Alexander the Great's conquest in 330 BC, the whole picture of this part of the world changes with the increasing Hellenistic influences. So in this episode, I'm going to focus on about 800 to 400 BC, and then hopefully delve more into the later eras in future episodes. So first, an explanation of the ethnic designation Arab and the geographical term Arabia is in order, because these terms are somewhat confusing when used in the pre-Islamic era. After the Islamic conquests in the 7th century CE, Arabia referred to the Arabian Peninsula, while Arabs were just people who spoke Arabic. But the pre-Islamic world is a much more complex picture. So the first appearance of the term Arab in writing is from 853 BC, when a certain Gindibu from the land of Arabia and his 100 camels are mentioned as fighting in a battle against the Assyrians. In this case, the land of Arabia is probably synonymous with the Arabian Peninsula. In subsequent periods, Arabs are mentioned as living outside of the Arabian Peninsula as well, including in the Levant, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and even in Iran. This could, in part, have been due to the natural migrations and dispersions that nomadic peoples take over time as pasture lands dry up or famine, flood, drought, or disease force nomads to move into new areas. But it could also have been because nomadic groups in the Middle East, as they came under the control of states like the Assyrians, were sometimes forcibly relocated to different parts of the empire as a means of making them easier to control and surveil and to prevent homegrown rebellions. The term Arab is often interpreted as referring exclusively to nomads when it appears in ancient Near Eastern sources, despite the fact that Arabs could also be sedentary peoples living in urban centers. The word Arab, when used by ancient writers, could refer to either a sedentary person or a nomad, and we have to rely on other context clues within a given source to try to figure out if the person or persons being referred to might have been nomadic or not. 
So in this episode, I'm going to attempt to focus on just the nomadic peoples included under the designation Arab and what we know about their lifestyles, cultures, and histories. Both agriculturalists and nomadic pastoralists have inhabited the arid regions of the Levant, from the Syrian steppe through the Jordanian desert to the Negev desert, the Sinai Peninsula, and into the vast deserts of Arabia since at least 6000 BC. And by around 850 BC, a complex of both oasis settlements and pastoral tent camps had been established by a people who were referred to as the Arabs. So the desert regions were inhabited by tribes of sheep and camel-raising nomads who lived in tents and unfortified temporary encampments, and moved from place to place within a delineated area with their flocks, and occasionally raided the permanent settlements in the regions adjacent to the desert when necessary. They also made peaceful contact at regular intervals with this sedentary population living in the oasis towns, where they acquired supplies such as grains, weapons, and clothing in exchange for the yield from their flocks. And the term Arab was virtually synonymous with people who lived in deserts or in tents. You waited by the roadside for lovers like an Arab in the desert, says the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Babylon will be overthrown by God, prophesied Isaiah, and never again will the Arab pitch his tent there. The 8th century BC Assyrian king Sargon II speaks of the Arabs who live far away in the desert and who know neither overseers nor officials. These descriptions come across as a bit pejorative, but there are also references to elite Arabs, to kings of the Arabs who also lived in tents. So, for example, an inscription from Persian Emperor Cyrus the Great's cylinder from 539 BC records that all the kings of the entire world, from the upper to the lower sea, those who are seated in throne rooms, all the kings of the Westland living in tents, brought their heavy tributes and kissed my feet in Babylon. And so references such as these can tell us a bit about the wealth and political power of some of these nomadic groups. And by the end of the second millennium BC, the trade of spices and incense from the Arabian Peninsula was booming, and this was in particularly due to the domestication of the camel, which made it possible to carry these spices and incense and other products from Arabia over great distances. So as a result, there was a significant change in the nature of contact between the nomadic Arabs and their sedentary populations. Nomads became important for the maintenance of trade because of their pre-existing location along trade routes. And profit from this key branch of the economy and an interest in its uninterrupted operation generated new relationships between nomads, farmers, merchants, and government officials based on mutually beneficial commerce. So nomadic Arabs were heavily involved in the caravan trade, and they profited from it significantly. One cuneiform text records a South Arabian caravan that was operating around the Middle Euphrates in Mesopotamia in the mid-8th century BC. 
The caravan was led by both Tamanites and Sabaeans. The Tamanites were inhabitants of Tama, an oasis in modern northwestern Saudi Arabia, and the Sabaeans were a South Arabian people from the area of modern-day Yemen. The region Saba is thought by some to be the same as the biblical kingdom of Sheba, although that's somewhat controversial. And the caravan they led was composed of 200 camels loaded with luxurious purple-dyed woolen garments, iron, and alabaster. And presumably, the Arabs would have taken quite a cut of the proceeds from ensuring that this caravan safely crossed the desert and made its way to its destination. And we can then extrapolate that revenue to that from all of the other trading caravans that were crisscrossing the desert in this time. But as the Arabs played an increasingly important role in expansive trade networks, and as this trade became increasingly efficient and systematized and therefore increasingly lucrative, the nomadic Arabs also became increasingly interesting to the settled states around them. We already know from the first written reference to an Arab, Gindibu from the land of Arabia and his hundred camels, that the Arabs were engaged in warfare against the states around them. And this inscription referencing Gindibu dates to 853 BC, when the Neo-Assyrian Empire that dominated Mesopotamia, West Asia, and the Levant was at something of a low point. It was embroiled in a civil war that had allowed many of its former vassals to shake off Neo-Assyrian control. So the Arabs, for the time being, remained largely independent, but this changed about a century later during the reign of the Neo-Assyrian Emperor Tiglath-Pileser, who turned things around for the Assyrians by implementing sweeping administrative and bureaucratic reforms and launching massive campaigns of conquest against both former Assyrian vassals and new territories and vastly expanded the empire's boundaries. The Arabs were no exception, and in fact, they may have been a particularly appealing target given their importance to trade and their wealth from trade. And I'll talk about this a bit more in a future episode. So for now, I'll just say that in around 730 BC, the largest and most powerful Arab tribe, the Kidarites, who occupied large parts of the Negev Desert, southern Jordan, and northern Saudi Arabia, were conquered and became Assyrian vassals. They appear to have been left more or less to their own devices, however, as long as they paid their mandated tribute to the emperor. As I said, in some cases, empires would resettle vassal peoples in a different part of the empire, but the Kidarites escaped that fate, although Tiglath-Pileser did assign a governor to supervise the Kidarite leader and also establish a garrison of 10,000 Assyrian troops to watch over the Kidarite lands. Interestingly, in another instance, a nomadic Arab sheikh or leader who was named Laban was put in charge of deportees from another part of the Assyrian Empire who were resettled in Laban's territory, which was right on the border between Palestine and Egypt. And this is recorded in an inscription dating to the rule of Sargon II, who ruled from 722 until 705 BC. And the inscription that documents this event is very poorly preserved with plenty of lacunae. 
So a lot of details are missing, but we know that at the same time as these deportees were being settled on the border with Egypt, Sargon was subjugating nomadic peoples in northern Arabia, and also that the deportees who were put under Laban's supervision migrated to his lands with flocks of sheep. And this heavily implies a nomadic lifestyle. And putting two and two together, we can infer that perhaps it was nomadic, sheep-herding Arabs from northern Arabia who had been conquered by Sargon and resettled in another part of the empire, where they were put under the control of another nomadic chieftain. So we can see how nomadic peoples were disrupted and interfered with by settled states, but also how, at least in this case, presumably these nomads were allowed to keep their nomadic lifestyle, given that they were resettled under a nomadic leader and were allowed to migrate with their flocks to another part of the empire where sheep herding was still ecologically possible. But we can also see how nomadic leaders were becoming part of the Assyrian administration and bureaucracy and presumably attained some status within the Assyrian government. The entanglement of nomads in Assyrian bureaucracy is further exemplified by a letter dating to the end of the 8th century BC, which has the king instructing one of his officials to give a certain man named Badi'ilu an appointment and to let him pasture in the midst of the land. And later in the same letter, the official is instructed to let Arabs pasture their flocks in the land. This Bad'ilu was presumably a nomad, given the instruction to grant him grazing rights, and the instruction to give him an appointment perhaps suggests that he was also to be given some sort of administrative position at the same time. And these instructions to let nomads pasture their flocks in a given area illustrates how nomadic movements were controlled by the empire, but at the same time how the empire facilitated and permitted nomadic migrations and pasturage. Nevertheless, the following centuries were a time of seemingly endless campaigns against and uprisings by the Arabs. In around 690 BC, a chain of events was sparked that led to years of further conflict and entanglement of the Arabs in the Assyrian polity. Sennacherib, who was emperor from 705 until 681, is recorded as undertaking a campaign against, once again, the Kedarites, uh, and specifically against their king and queen, likely because of a rebellion. So the Assyrians first routed these Arabs and their tents in the desert, whereupon the Arabs fled to the oasis city of Dumat al-Jandal in northern Saudi Arabia. But the king and queen were captured by the Assyrians and taken off to their capital, Nineveh, in modern-day Iraq, along with tribute and the cult statues of the Arabs' gods. And later, Kedarite leaders returned to Nineveh to petition for the return of their cult statues, which they received, but only in return for more tribute. The Assyrians were apparently receiving so much tribute from the Arabs that a gate in the city of Nineveh was called the Desert Gate, because this was the gate through which the tribute of the Arab tribes entered the city. This pattern of events... The capture of Arab leaders and removal of their religious icons was repeated several times over the years, 
and it's noticeably different from how other conquered peoples were treated by the Assyrians, where instead their population centers would be destroyed. And this was, for obvious reasons, less of a viable tactic with a nomadic population. So instead, the Assyrians seem to have adopted the strategy of exacting a heavy tribute, removing their religious icons, and exerting more direct control over their rulers. After Sennacherib suppressed this revolt, the children of the conquered Kidarite king and queen were raised in Nineveh before being returned to the Arab lands to rule their people. And then going forward, whenever a Kidarite leader died, his or her successor had to be approved by the Assyrian ruler. When power changed hands, it often came with increased tribute to be paid to the Assyrians, which sounds harsh, but it was probably to the new leader's benefit to have the Assyrians firmly on their side. At one point, when an Arab tribe tried to overthrow its leader, the Assyrian army cracked down hard on the rebels and took them off to Nineveh to be punished as enemies of the king. But Arabs were much more likely to try to throw off the Assyrian yoke than to fight against each other. In the mid-7th century, the Arabs rose up again against King Ashurbanipal, conducting raids on settled populations in the borders of Jordan and Syria. And these raids were repulsed, and the Arab forces definitively quashed, and their defeat is described at length in Ashurbanipal's inscriptions. He says that the Assyrian army attacked the Arab camps and burned their tents, and so much loot was taken in the form of people, donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats, that the price of both camels and slaves in Assyria dropped dramatically. The Arabs who survived apparently suffered such extreme hunger that they were reduced to eating their children. The leader of the rebellion was taken to Nineveh and publicly displayed in a cage in which he was locked with a wild dog and a bear. Similar events occurred in following years as well, but gradually the tide began to turn as the Assyrians themselves became less powerful, increasingly harried by the Babylonians and eventually fully defeated by the Babylonians, who were in turn replaced by the Persian Achaemenid Empire. The Babylonians had supported the Arab tribes in some of their later revolts against the Assyrians, and during the period in which the Babylonians and Assyrians were competing with each other for power, the Arabs took advantage of that distraction to spread further into other areas, including Palestine and greater Syria. And under the Babylonians and later the Achaemenids, the Arabs played a very similar role as they had within the Assyrian Empire— Namely, they paid tribute, they occasionally rebelled, but they also had administrative roles and facilitated vital trade routes. Nomadic Arabs played an increasingly important role in the Achaemenid military, which is a phenomenon that began under the Assyrians, where the Arabs were documented as being indispensable to campaigns waged by King Esarhaddon in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula in 671. The Arabs' camels and their knowledge of the desert and of how to efficiently cross the desert while conserving water were crucial to this Assyrian campaign. A hundred years later, the second Achaemenid king of kings, Cambyses, was supported on his campaign to Egypt by camels loaded with water skins that had been provided to him by the Arabs. 
A hundred years after that, a corps of Arabs on racing camels took part in the infamously failed invasion of Greece by Persian ruler Xerxes in 480. We don't know nearly as much as we would like to about the ancient Arabs, and virtually everything that I've said in this episode comes from a limited amount of archaeological evidence and a slightly larger body of evidence from non-Arab textual sources. And as a result, we know next to nothing about inter- and intra-tribal dynamics, lifestyles, everyday life. That texture of what made an Arab an Arab is missing. But even from these somewhat biased sources, we do still know quite a bit about the nomadic ancient Arabs, and what we do know often runs surprisingly counter to what we might think about nomadic peoples within a large empire and within some of the greatest and most sophisticated civilizations that have ever existed. We know that they lived in tents in the desert, that they herded animals, participated in trade, had their own languages and religions, had politically powerful leaders and a significant degree of autonomy, and that despite the occasional rebellions and problems that they caused, they were extremely important to the empires they coexisted with by facilitating trade, military endeavors, and government functions. And even from this distance across time and space, and even with the less than ideal sources that preserve the history of the ancient Arabs, we can see how complex these societies were and how seemingly contradictory at times, which is a takeaway that can be applied to the study of the history of just about any nomadic group. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'll be putting out a few more episodes on the ancient Arabs soon, including a special episode about one of the Arab queens, as well as what the Bible tells us about the Arabs, so please stay tuned for that. I'll be putting sources for this episode, as well as some maps and photos up on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod, so please check that out if you're curious. And you can contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in a future episode. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.